I don't think that one's on me. Yes. It's usually me muted. I love you, but it feels so good for that not to be my fault. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, a few years ago, there was there's a, a man named Simon Sinek who gained some uh, notoriety and attention for a TED Talk that he gave where he, he talked about how the for a small slice of the general population, you can tell someone what to do, and that's enough for them. They'll just do whatever it is that you tell them. But for the majority of people, you've got to tell them why it is that you want them to do something. You've got to give them the why behind the what. Uh, he's got a book about that. The, the TED Talk is, is really, really good. But his point, he actually talks about Apple uh, products a lot. His point extends well beyond the realm of buying products or simply uh, doing what someone commands you to do. Uh, and I think it extends into some of what we experience as Christians, particularly some of what we are commanded to do as Christians. If you've been around churches very long, then you've heard people talk about the fact that there's a particular way that the Bible, that uh, Christ asks us to think and to act and to speak and uh, ways to behave, attitudes to have. Peter's about to launch into that sort of talk here throughout the rest of his letter. And verses 13 to 21 serve as a little bit of a transition from the declarative truths that we saw in verses 1 through 12 into what Peter is going to command that his readers do in response to the truth of the gospel. And this nine-verse chunk, verses 13 to 21, offers a little bit of a transition. Peter commands them to live holy lives. And in doing so, he gives three reasons why it is that we would want to do that. So that's what we're going to see today. Until we understand the why of our holiness, we won't want to work on the what of our holiness. I want to read to you verses 1 to 12 again. That's where we were last week. But they're important for where Peter goes this week. So if you'll take a look at 1 Peter with me. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look into. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully 
on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. That therefore is important. That therefore refers to the, the 12 verses that came before. One really long Greek sentence. Peter says, because of all of the truth that I've just laid out about who you are and who God is and what he's done for you and what's happening in your life and why it is that you might experience some of the persecution that you are, therefore, because of those things, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you because of the fact that this is not your home, because of the fact that there is hope in a future inheritance, because of the fact that suffering does exist, and because of the fact that your Savior has come, prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed to you. Peter is transitioning here in verse 13 from declarative truth to command. Edmund, or Edmund Clowney has a great book on 1 Peter. He says it this way, the indicative of what God has done for us and in us always comes before the imperative of what he has called us to do. I'll translate that for you. What God has done for you informs who you are and what you should do. It makes no sense to talk about holiness if you haven't taken a firm grasp on the fact that Christ has died for your sin, that he's paid the price for that, that if you put your faith in him, then you do have an inheritance that's guaranteed for you and cannot be taken away and that is kept for you. You've got to take hold of the truth of the first 12 verses before it makes any sense to talk about anything that comes in verses 13 and forward. Peter says, therefore... Prepare your minds for action. That phrase is literally, gird up the loins of your mind. That's an incredible phrase. It means nothing to us. Sounds really cool, though. It would be like a couple thousand years from now, somebody reading uh, the phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket, and thinking, I don't have any eggs. What is this person talking about? It's an idiom. It's something we understand that years from now, translated into another language, won't make any sense. So your Bible renders it for you, prepare your minds for action. That makes a little more sense. To gird up the loins of your mind is a reference to the fact that given all the long robes that they wore, if a, a Jewish person at this time wanted to be prepared to have to move quickly, they bundled up their robes and tucked them into their belt or tied them around their waist so that their legs were free to move. Peter's saying, gird up your mind in that sort of way. So that when you see something happen in the world around you, you're prepared to take action appropriately in response. Prepare your mind for action. Then he goes on to say, be sober-minded. Intoxication or drunkenness slows you down. It literally impedes your brain's ability to act at a normal rate. Peter's encouragement here is not to get intoxicated by the world around you, not to get dulled or bogged down by it. Instead, to be sober-minded. Don't get so just carried away in what's happening around you that you become dulled to the fact that it's a little bit different than Christ has called you to live. You're an exile. You're an alien here, a sojourner. That's what he said at the very beginning of this letter. What you experience as normative life in the world around you, if you're a Christian, should not be normal to you. 
It shouldn't look like the way that you're supposed to live. Be sober-minded. Don't get dulled into that stuff. And because you're prepared for action, you're sober-minded, and because of all the truth that comes up above this, now set your hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed to you. Ultimately, what Peter's doing them is he's giving them this encouragement to not shrink back in the face of the persecution that they're facing. This isn't their home. There's great hope and inheritance in the future. Suffering has come, but it's temporary and it has a purpose. This is where you live right now, Peter says. Pay attention to it. Act accordingly. And then in verses 14 to 21, he gives them three reasons to live a holy life. And so we're just going to walk our way through those. The first one is all about relationship. Look at verses 14 to 16 with me. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then just the next few words. And if you call on him as father. First motivation is all about relationship. Before we really dive into these, I think it's important for us to talk about what holy means. You've probably heard the word a lot. We just sang it quite a bit in all of our songs. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holiness or holy literally means to be set apart for the glory of God. That's what it is to be holy. God is the perfect image of that. He is set apart. He's totally different than what we see in the broken and sinful world around you. He's set apart and for his own glory. The Jewish people were to be set apart for the glory of God. He called them away. They were supposed to go to a promised land and live with him. All the instruments in their temple were supposed to be holy, set apart for the glory of God, that everything that went on at the temple and utilized those instruments had one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to be used in the temple to bring glory to the Lord. They were supposed to be holy. Jesus is the full embodiment of holiness in a human life, that you would give yourself fully to being devoted to the glory of the Lord. And we are called to be holy in the same sort of way. I said we were going to revisit some of the truths we talked about in the first 12 verses uh, last week, and so it's important that we pick one up here, and it's this, you're not home, which means if you take seriously the call to follow Jesus, you're going to be set apart. You're going to look like the alien or the sojourner that you really are. You're going to look like an exile. It's going to be different than the things around you because you're going to set yourself apart for the glory of the Lord. If you've given your life to Christ, that's the truth. You're not home. It should look a little bit different. And so Peter says that we engage in this process of holiness as obedient children. And that father-child relationship is so important. It's the way we're supposed to think about how we relate with God. He is our father. If you're a parent in the room, or even if you're not, at some point you were a child. You know how much, parents, you long for your children to be obedient. It's not rooted in some sort of desire to be like a tyrant dictator within the walls of your home. That's not what it's about. It's rooted in love. You want them to obey because you love them and you're trying to care for and protect them and mold them into adults who live well in the world. When you tell your child not to touch the hot stove, it has nothing, about wanting, or nothing to do with wanting to be a killjoy 
It's got everything to do with not wanting your child to burn their hand. It comes out of love. That's the same way that God's commands operate for us. He's a loving father who looks upon all of his children and says, here's the right way to live. I'm trying to lovingly protect you. And we should strive to obey him and his holy standard in the same way that we want our children to obey us, all flowing out of love. Peter says, do not be conformed to the pattern of your former ignorance. It literally means don't pattern yourself after your former ignorance. Don't pattern your life as a Christian off your life before Christ. Don't copy the sinful world around you. It's the exact same phrase that Paul uses in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Instead of being patterned after either the way that you lived before you knew Christ or the way that you see the people around you live, pattern yourself after the Lord because he is holy. Here's another truth reminder. This was one of our truths from last week. You've been born again. The Holy Spirit has marked you as a child of God. And that same Holy Spirit is within you, empowering you to live a life that is being ever sanctified and transformed into greater obedience to Jesus Christ. Don't pattern your life after the sinful world around you. Pattern it it after the sinless God who lovingly saved you. That should be our mold. Oftentimes what happens is that we want to take the Spirit out of our increased holiness, our process of sanctification. That'd be like taking the engine out of a car. You might have the greatest looking car in the world, but if you take the engine out of it, it cannot go anywhere. It can't do anything. If you try to take up the process of your sanctification, of your growth in holiness, devoid from the Spirit, you won't go anywhere. That is the one unique thing that separates a Christian's desire to live a quote-unquote good life from a non-believer's desire to live a quote-unquote good life. One's empowered by the Spirit, motivated by the pattern of the Lord. The other is just going based off being better than the person around them. Don't pattern yourself after your former ignorance. Be holy as the Lord is holy. He is your your model and your standard. God is your loving Father. Obey Him as a loving child. I want to... Before we go on to point number two here, I want to attract your attention to one other word in this phrase. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The Greek here is a little bit tricky. That word all means all. Every bit of it. It means you should be set apart for the glory of God in all that you do. Not just talking about lying to your boss or using harsh words or something. You should be set apart for the glory of God in the way that you use your time. You should be set apart for the glory of God in the way that you use your speech, set apart in your behavior, set apart with the use of your money, your sexual activity, your relationships, set apart in the way you view media. All of your conduct. The Holy Spirit doesn't come into a believer's life and then pick and choose areas that it wants to pattern after the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes into a believer's life and wants to transform everything into the model of the Lord. The question that we need to answer is this. Are we allowing the sanctifying work of the Spirit to transform all areas of our life? Or are we sectioning areas off and saying, you can't have this part. I want to hold on to this. 
I would prefer the pattern of my former ignorance than the model of the Lord here. Why is this motivation important? God's desire from our holiness comes from his love for us. And God loves you way too much to let you weigh down your life with the consequences of your sin. Our desire to obey him should come out of our love for him. We are to love God too much to let our sin weigh down the visible reality of his glory in our world. We're to be set apart for his glory. If we really understand his love for us as a father and that his commands come out of that, we should have a desire within us that says, I love you far too much, God, to let my struggles with sin diminish your glory in this world. There's a why behind the what. Let me give you another one. Verse 17 says this, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Motivation number two is reverent fear. God has been the same since before time began. He is eternally unchanging in his character. Which means I want to give you some Old Testament reminders of just how God feels about sin. He once flooded the entire earth because of it. He once destroyed a couple of cities because of it. He once opened the ground and swallowed up a number of his people because of sin. The sin of one man once led to the routing of the entire Israelite army. At one point, he forced his chosen people out of their promised land because of sin. And we have a tendency to think when we read the New Testament that God in the New Testament all of a sudden doesn't feel that way about sin. That somehow he's become only love and there is no side of him that is just and righteous and is going to judge impartially. We want to take God's wrath towards sin and remove it from him in the New Testament. But the reality is God's wrath towards sin is more on display in the New Testament than anywhere else in Scripture and it's all poured out on one person, his son. God did not arrive at the birth of Jesus and decide that he no longer cared about sin. In fact, he cared about it so much that he sent his son to the cross because of it. It isn't glamorous to talk about God that way, but he still feels the exact same way about sin today as he did in the Old Testament. Because of that, we should have a reverent fear of him. The wording there matters. Look at verse 17. Peter sees as complementary, not contradictory, the fact that God is a loving father and an impartial judge. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. He sees those running in the exact same lane, not as two separate, incompatible ideas. He sees them as related. The same God we relate to as loving Father will also be our just judge. Both of those realities should be motivations for living a holy life. Let's revisit the parent-child relationship, but flip it around. You're the child now. You're in high school. You've got a curfew. Let's just call it 11 p.m. You're wherever you are doing whatever you're doing, and you've become doled by the amount of fun that you're having and the setting that you're in. You're intoxicated. You're not drunk, but your brain is intoxicated by that. And all of a sudden, it's 11.10. You haven't left yet. You hop in your car to drive home, and you're thinking to yourself, Mama or Daddy is going to be waiting for me when I get in the door. 
you're not also thinking to yourself, but it's okay because they love me. (laughs) You're thinking to yourself, mom or dad is going to be waiting there and they are going to judge justly (laughs) because they love me. It's the same with God. It's the exact same with the Lord. We are to conduct ourselves with appropriate fear while we live out our days on this earth because God is going to judge. And we would be wise to remember that. You have what is positional holiness if you've placed your faith in the Lord. That means that when you stand before him at judgment, he's going to see you as righteous and clean and holy thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf in his blood covering your sin. But we are to work out practical holiness as we live our lives. Which means that there should be an understanding in the back of our mind that we're going to stand before the Lord holy and righteous thanks to the work of Christ Yet at the same time, we're going to stand before the Lord and also know whether or not we just lived our life full of sin willy-nilly because God loves us and he's not going to judge. Those two things, Peter says, should run complementary to each other. He is your father and he loves you, but he's also your judge and he's going to judge. And it's going to be impartial and just and righteous. God is going to judge. And we would be wise to remember that. Here's the third reason, the last few verses this morning, verses 18 to 21. Say this. It says, To conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Reason number three here is redemption. Redemption. God paid an extreme price for the forgiveness of your sin. Here's a truth reminder. We presently partake and the privileges the prophets predicted. That was number 15 last week, if you numbered them. Peter says that you have been ransomed. Literally, a price has been paid to grant your freedom. And he says it's not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. It wasn't paid by an earthly means that is somehow going to lose value or perish or go away like gold or silver would. It was paid with something much more valuable. In fact, that's what the word precious means valuable. It's a play on words to show the surpassing worth of Jesus' blood compared to the gold or silver that someone would normally pay a ransom with. That the blood of Christ has extreme value. Verse 20, he says that he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Foreknown, there's that word again. We saw it last week. Since eternity past, God has known the Son. The Son has always existed. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son didn't just show up when Jesus was born. The Son is pre-existent, eternally. He's always existed. He's not only always existed, He's always existed for the purpose of coming in order to bring salvation to humanity, to redeem them from their sin by dying on the cross. The same God you relate to as Father and fear is impartial judge, you can trust 
Because since before the beginning of the world, he had a plan to save you. A plan to send his eternally existent son to earth to live a sinless life, die a sinner's death, and redeem sinful humanity. There's a motivation for a holy life. I'm about to tell you a little bit about the end of the movie Saving Private Ryan. If you've never seen it, you had 18 years worth of chances, and so I don't feel bad. I don't feel bad about ruining, ruining it for you. There's a scene that takes place at the end of the movie where Private Ryan is standing uh, just across the bridge. He's been rescued by a battalion's worth of men that went to find him. And Tom Hanks, who is the leader of that battalion is dying on the side of the bridge, and he's about to blow it out. And he pulls Private Ryan down real close to him, and like six or seven guys have given their life to save him. He pulls him down real close, and he says, earn this. Earn this. It's not possible for Private Ryan to earn the fact that six or seven individuals gave their life to save him. You could not live a life worthy of that cause. But you can live your life in response to that. The same is true here. It is not possible for a human being, sinful and broken, to earn the fact that Jesus Christ went to the cross and died on our behalf. But it is absolutely the responsibility of every believer to live in response to it. Motivation number three for why you would wake up every single morning and wrestle with your sinful flesh is because God, through Christ, paid a costly, costly price to redeem you from your sinfulness. That you would wake up every morning and you would say, I have a relationship with a loving and good father who's going to judge me impartially at some point in the future, and yet he sent his son to redeem me. Three reasons why you would engage in the process of your own holiness, Peter says. Relationship, reverent fear, and redemption. The God we relate to as Father and the God we reverently fear as judge is the same God we can wholeheartedly trust because he has redeemed us. I want to conclude with this. The the worship team can come on up. Part of the reason why I think the church in America at times struggles to really prevail with the gospel is because we don't take holiness seriously. Don't get me wrong here. We really want people outside the church to shape up and fly right. We really want people outside the church to live by the standard that the church is called to live to. But at some point, there's a disconnect because at times, we don't want to hold ourselves to that standard. And so what happens is that as a church, we're not set apart for the glory of God. Instead, we look a whole lot like the world around us, and we call the world around us to set themselves apart. The body of believers, the church was designed to live and act and speak and engage with the world in such a way that they would be set apart for the glory of the Lord and for the expanse of the gospel. And until we, the church, Big C, not just LCF, but the Big C Church, take that call seriously, there's nothing really beautiful about the church. There's nothing really enticing about placing your faith in Jesus Christ. 
until by our actions we display that we've got a relationship with a loving Father who one day is going to judge and yet sent His Son to redeem us, I think the church in America is going to continually struggle to gain any traction with the gospel of Jesus Christ in our culture. We are to be set apart for the glory of God. And if the what is not enough for you, Peter says, then the why is that you've got relationship, reverent fear, and redemption. And those three things ought to motivate you to wake up every day and say, I am sinful and broken, but at the same time, I've been bought at a price. And because of that, I'm willing to wrestle with my sinfulness so that God would receive glory. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. We're going to stand up and we're going to sing a song to close this morning. Uh, We're going to sing the song, Good, Good Father. We have a relationship with a good, good Father who bought our redemption at a very steep price. And we ought to live lives set apart for His glory. Let's sing.